Archiver, Kansas Vets Remember Vietnam, is made possible by a grant from the Kansas Humanities Council. Uh, this is 12924. That flare is going to have to refuel, so he'll be breaking station shortly. I just want you to check with Bravo and see if he can uh, uh, put an adjustment on this artillery that we got programmed to go down here where we took that AK-47 fire over. It's been more than a half century since the end of the Vietnam War. Vietnam changed American politics, changed the U.S. military, and, most importantly, changed the lives of hundreds of thousands of Americans. I'm Katie Stover, and in this Archiver series, we meet four Kansans who fall into that category. Four people who fought the war not with M-16s, Claymore mines, and grit, but with bandages, medicine, and pure compassion. And we start with Dr. H.C. Palmer from Pittsburgh, Kansas. I was drafted in April of 1964, along with, was in my first year of residency at the University of Kansas Medical Center. And Lyndon Johnson drafted 1,500 doctors at once on that, in, in that month. And uh, interestingly, the Gulf of Tonkin Resolution was five months later in August of 1964. So it appeared, uh, that it appears in retrospect that he was plugging some holes in some of the division surgeons and uh, battalion surgeons and so forth in the evac hospitals so he'd be ready to uh, go ahead and start the war, start the American war in Vietnam. Ask H.C. about his experiences in Vietnam, and he talks about the people, the wounded he tried to save, the ill local villagers he tried to treat, the friends he lost, and his comrades who came home. He spent one year in Vietnam with the 1st Infantry Division as a battalion surgeon. He was a captain, the rank of most doctors drafted into the military. From the very first, H.C. was wary of the people with the power to make decisions about his life. What was your first thought? How did you feel when you received your draft notice? Well, we, we knew we had the word from our, uh, our uh, staff members at the University of Kansas that there wasn't anything much to do about it. Uh, and so I had no idea that we were going to go to war. Um, and my biggest problem then was uh, to uh, decide. They did give us a choice where we wanted to go for our, uh, our service, and I chose Fort Riley uh, after our, our indoctrination down at Fort Sam Houston, just thinking I'd be there a couple of years and then come back to school. Little did I know that a year after I went in, then I'd be going to Vietnam. How was basic training? Well, that's a good question because you'd think with uh, uh, several hundred doctors at Fort Sam Houston, they'd be taking, teaching us to take care of uh, injured uh, soldiers in the battlefield. We never had one class about that. We learned to march. We learned uh, coordinates on maps. We learned to find our way back in the middle of the night when they dumped us off somewhere, um, how to read a map and use a compass. Uh, we learned to crawl under live fire that appeared to be about two feet off the ground, but it was probably actually 10 or 12 feet. And, uh, but we did not learn uh, anything about, uh, of course, we could all start IVs, but we didn't learn anything about what replacement fluids they had that we could use in the field. We uh, didn't know what a dust-off or a medivac was until we got to, to Fort Riley, back to Fort Riley. So it was uh, obviously something that draft was done in haste, and uh, um, 
in retrospect, we were ill-prepared uh, when we got there. But we had no idea that of the, of the uh, uh, intensity and the uh, uh, manpower that would be employed in that war. We thought it was just a little shooting game between some boats in the South China Sea. So we, we never thought about going to war until about two months before uh, um, we left. Uh, my battalion, I was a battalion surgeon, and my battalion was flown down to uh, Eglin Air Force Base in Florida, and we went through some maneuvers. Uh, and I remember uh, we were watching C-130s come in and take off, and I was standing there with uh, my battalion uh, commander, and also the uh, division commander, and uh, troops were running off the C-130s, and other troops were running on, and and uh, and a man in a white short white shirt and his hair slicked hair slicked back and wire rim glasses was standing about 50 yards from us all by himself as civilian, and I asked my CO who that was, and he asked the general, and he said that's uh, Mr. McNamara. <laughs> so that was a little made us a little suspicious that something was up. Who were you leaving behind? I left uh, my wife and uh, a boy that was uh, five years old and a boy that was two years old. What was your wife's reaction to this news? She uh, didn't say much. She just clammed up, and we didn't talk about it much, except I'd be gone a year and back. So what was your most, what was your first thought when you stepped off the plane in Vietnam? What did it feel like? We went over in a troop ship Ah. and got on landing boats at a place called Vang Tau, which was a resort town in in South Vietnam. And we came up just like World War II guys, only we were carrying our packs. We had no weapons and, uh, uh, or at least the doctors had no weapons and, and the infantry that was on the troop ship with us did. And we walked on and got on a C-130 and flew up to an airbase called Benoit. waiting to find out where they were going to send us. Uh, a helicopter crashed and not too far from us and we saw the fire and the smoke and uh, it was a Chinook, a big Chinook and it had uh, jet fuel on board and 55 gallon drums so it was a big fire and, and there were bodies around burning so we said oh this, this is serious you know. This was self, self-inflicted, it wasn't shot down, it just crashed for some reason. So that was the first sobering moment that we had there. This sobering moment wouldn't be the last, and it's this memory that leads to other memories, all featuring faces from the war H.C. has never forgotten. The hardest part um, was some of the injuries, some of the injuries uh, from weapons or one oh five or one five five shells that had been booby trapped in the middle of a road or something and taking care of those guys and getting them out. Um, I suppose the worst thing I saw was one of our medics uh, had been shot in the head by a sniper and uh, 
uh, and I, I wrote about that in my, in my book. And uh, he was a, a, a medic from uh, San Diego, and he was a surfer. He loved the Beach Boys, and he was always singing Beach Boys song. And I, and I think he was singing a Beach Boys song when he was killed. And he was also using a latrine. He fell down in there, so we had all that to deal with. And that was pretty, pretty uh, traumatic. Who were some of your other friends while you were while you were serving? Uh, I had a friend that I grew up with who was a pilot at Da Nang, and and in the second half of my tour, I was back at battalion headquarters. That some new doctors had come over, so I got to move back out of the uh, medical battalion out in the fire base, and. Uh, a buddy of mine, when he found out I was there, he was up at Da Nang, this guy I grew up with in Chinook, and his name was Billy. And he sent me a flight suit, and he was a captain too, and had his name on the flight suit. He also sent me some orders that I could go to Tonsonut Air Base in Saigon and fly anywhere I wanted to. So I flew up to see him for uh, three days in Da Nang, and I actually, he didn't tell me, but I flew a mission with him. He flew a little Cessna O1E bird dog. He was a Ford Air Controller. And, he would mark targets with white phosphorus rockets. He had one on each wing. And um, that was pretty scary. I had an, M, an M16, which is essentially the same as an AR-15. And um, he liked to shoot at people out of the window. And I never, uh, I shot, but I shot way away from him. I didn't want to shoot anybody. And I wrote about that too. And Billy died uh, a few months after I left. It was his own fault, but uh, he was a good friend, and he died. For H.C., his personal turning point came on a hotel rooftop with a friend, while the two of them sipped wine and watched the war in the distance. I remember one night we were... uh, uh, at the sitting at, on the restaurant at the top of the ho- hotel Rex called the Rooftop Garden. It's still there, by the way. A friend of mine sent me a photograph of it last year. The girl that lives here in town, she's a theater student. And she was over there and took a photograph. And I remember us sitting up there and we were eating lobster. It's a French restaurant because all the elegant restaurants that were French and eating uh, 75 cent lobster tails and drinking Pouli Fousset wine and we're, this At the time, this was the seventh floor of the hotel. It was the tallest building, one of the tallest buildings in Saigon. And you could see out over the Saigon River and see the sampans there bobbing around, and you could see it. It was night, and you could see the war going on out in the Delta. And we saw bombs from, obviously, a B-52, just a track of bombs going for several miles. And we saw flares and and uh, tracer bullets and so we're up there watching the war this this is the uh, absolute uh, stupidity dichotomy of the war was up there watching the war from the rooftop garden at the hotel rex drinking some drinking wine and some of the eating some of the best food and in the world probably and uh, it was uh it was kind of hard to take in you know um it was uh, hard to believe that uh, 
we're supposed we we probably shouldn't be out there taking care of somebody, but it's hard to believe we're sitting up here doing this. What what the heck is going on here? You know. By then we'd uh, we both knew that uh, uh, we probably shouldn't have ever been there. Well, we knew for sure we should never have been there, and that we'd been lied to, and uh, the whole war was based on on not a lie but several lies by several uh, presidents down over the years, including the domino theory, which we'd figured out by then was a lie as well. Um, Sounds like that that dinner, that night out, that elegant night out, was a turning point for you? Yeah, that was about when, um, that was a turning point for both of us. My friend, by the way, who was with me, who was the most decorated doctor in the Vietnam War, He's, he, whenever a Special Forces A team would get hit, they'd fly him in with a bunch of fluids and blood and uh, antibiotics, uh, ammunition and so forth. And he'd stay out there until the A team uh, uh, was no longer threatened and they'd pick him up and bring him back. But he received a Distinguished Service Cross and a Bronze Star and two Purple Hearts and should have, should have died, but he didn't. And I'm glad he didn't. We're still very close friends, and we we get together and talk and and have some uh, pretty interesting conversations. And they all always still involve the American War in Vietnam. This turning point led to HC's epiphany while treating the local Vietnamese children and adults for common ailments. Uh, every two or three days, we'd take a, our medical t- a medical team out and go to some small village somewhere and and. Go through the population. We had uh, there might be three or four hundred people in these little villages, and we had, of course, had interpreters with us. But these were people who'd never seen a doctor in their life, and we saw people with tuberculosis and uh, with all kinds of probably malignancies. And we saw the kids were just basically had their skins had dirty skin, you know, and and they go wash off in in the in a in a creek or a river somewhere, but there's somebody upstream using it as a toilet, you know, and it's pretty dirty water, lots of um, uh, little bugs and so little uh, leeches that live in the water, so they've, always, they've got all these parasites. And so we, that was the great thing about it is we, we had the means to treat them for most of the things if we could diagnose it. And um, that was, you know, I, I learned these people were nice people. They're just people that don't have much. They're living out there. They're happy rice farming, but they don't want to be sick. We were able to help them, but um, on the same, in the, at the same time, maybe their sons or husbands were Viet Cong, and I, I, I can recall treating um, several young men with injuries that were probably shrapnel injuries or something, and uh, the, the the interpreter would say, uh, Doc, I think he's BC. You know, and I say, well, we're just going to treat him like anybody else and don't tell anybody. Because um, I remember we were doing body counts then, and they would bring dead um, Vietnamese in, and some of them were young boys, 10, 11, 12 years old. And and I, I don't know whether they were out really, you know, trying to lob a little mortar in, into a fire base or, or shooting... Uh, some weapon. They were probably too small to carry an AR-15. It would knock them over when they, when they fired it. But we, we, our, our medical uh, 
commander and the people in charge uh, said, you know, your job's not to find VC. You know, just treat people that are hurt or sick. And that's what we did. So, and, and that was um, that was a meaningful part of being there. We, we probably, I probably did 25 or 30 of those. They were called medical civil action patrol medcap operations. Did you mostly treat children or or adults? Well, we we treated the children, but the adults would be more chronic things that we couldn't treat. But we did have the interpreters get them to a uh, into a, Saigon. We we were just thirteen miles from Saigon, so we had a, a kind of a, a pathway to get them into a hospital there and get them seen. We even offered transportation to, to take them in there for at least one visit. So if, if they had tuberculosis, they could get started on some drugs. If they had malaria, of course, a lot of people had malaria over there as well, and, and uh, a lot of skin diseases from parasites and so forth. Must so that was a good. That was a good part, and you know that was. That was the part that uh, you realized that, you know, the only difference between you and them is they were born there and you were born over here. There's no other, otherwise there's no difference. And they're good people. And, and uh, that, that, that seeing those people and, and, and understanding we had invaded their backyard, they didn't invade our backyard, uh, was turned, was, after a few months, was pretty much turned against, against the war. You know, we, as somebody said, one of my doctor friends said, uh, gee, we're the enemy over here in Vietnam. They're not the enemy. <laughs> and it's, it's uh, that probably bothers me more than anything from the war, that we could go over there and dehumanize those people who had done nothing except to us. All they wanted to do was raise their rice, catch their catfish out of the, out of the little canals, and just live. States lost the war in Vietnam? I don't think anybody's ever won a war in Vietnam. And we absolutely did lose the war in Vietnam. I, I you know, I, I see, I work with vet writers and I've worked with some vets with other problems, Vietnam vets. And there are vets that, uh, uh, you know, will say, I said I, I was the enemy in Vietnam. They'll say I was killing the enemy in Vietnam. Well, and I think that's that's a, a stance they take uh, because if they didn't believe that, if they didn't truly believe they were in, in the right war and doing the right thing, that I, you know, they would have some terrible moral issues to deal with. And that's their. I give I'm giving them all this uh, credit for not just being bad people and, and hate and hateful, but that's what keeps them sane believe that they were fighting a war they should have been fighting in. And I don't know how, I've never tried to convince anybody like that that, that they're wrong because I'm afraid to, to do that. Might, they might kill themselves, you know. You know we, suicide's a terrible, is a, is a terrible uh, result of war and it's not getting any better.
H.C. remembers the faces, but he remembers the sounds, too. There are two songs in the Vietnam War era that can take him back to that time and place and bring back the faces of friends. Simon and Garfunkel's The Sounds of Silence and Peter, Paul and Mary's Puff the Magic Dragon. Yeah, immediately it takes me back. But it's not, uh, but I still love the song, you know. It's not a song I don't want to hear. And the other one we I liked was Puff the Magic Dragon. <laughs> Peter, Paul, and Mary. Puff the Magic Dragon. Puff the Magic Dragon. And that, that's just because of its lightness. And nobody had pot yet <laughs> in 1965 in Vietnam. So I might have liked it better if they had pot. But, yeah. <laughs> that's two ends of the spectrum. It is, exactly. Hello, darkness, my old friend. I've come to talk with you again. Because a vision softly creeping Left its seeds while I was sleeping And the vision that was planted in my brain Still remains within the sound of silence Lightness and darkness, though. Yeah. That does seem to make a little sense. So whenever you hear those two songs, oh, you're yeah. jerked back? Yeah, but not in a bad way. Yeah, so that's good. That is good. When my eyes were stared by the flash of a neon light It split the night And touched the sound of silence H.C. Palmer returned to Kansas City to complete his medical education. He practiced internal and sports medicine for over 45 years, nearly 20 of those in Kansas City. When he retired, H.C. turned his attention to writing poetry to help him work through the memories and experience he still carried with him from Vietnam. In 2014, H.C. co-founded and organized Kansas City's Veterans Writing Workshop. His debut collection, Feet of the Messenger, was published in fall of 2017 and was a finalist for the Thorpe Men Literary Excellence Award. Silence like a cancer grows. Hear my words that I might teach you. Take my arms that I might reach you. But my words like silence. Echo the wells of silence And the people bowed and prayed To the neon god they made And the sign flashed out its warning In the words that it was forming And the sign said the words of the prophets are written Silence. 
Next time on Archiver, Kansas Vets Remember Vietnam, retired Army Master Sergeant Richard Schroeder from Topeka talks about his odd route into a military career, his service with the Air Cavalry, and the many responsibilities he handled as a medic stationed near the front lines. You could say that a regular day, there was no regular day, because some days were very slow and very uh, monotonous, for lack of a better word. Um, other days were busy because we were getting wounded in. Archiver is produced by Sam Zeff in conjunction with Do Good Productions, where Nancy Seelan is executive producer, and with Matt Hodep at Fountain City Frequency. Archiver, Kansas Vets Remember Vietnam, is made possible by a grant from the Kansas Humanities Council. I'm Katie Stover, and I'll see you on the next Archiver.